Chapter Sixteen of Meg of Mystery Mountain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Meg of Mystery Mountain by Grace May North. Chapter Sixteen: The Trapper's Cabin. Dan felt a glow of pleasure as he neared the log cabin which nestled against the mountain, sheltered by rock walls on the side from which the worst storms always came eagerly he looked ahead hoping that he would see the girl he wanted to thank her for having saved his life but no one was in sight it was a pleasant home-like place with chickens clucking cheerfully in a large wired-in yard goats climbed among the rocks at the back and a washing fluttered on the line at one side while to the boy's delight masses of wild flowers showing evidence of loving care carpeted the earth-filled stretches between boulders and some of them that trailed along the ground hung over the cliff in vivid bloom it was meg's garden he knew without being told he rapped on the closed front doors but a voice from outside called to him whoever tis come round here i'm washin Dan did as he was told, and saw a thin, angular woman, who stood very upright and looked at him out of keen blue eyes, as she wiped her sudsy hand on her gingham apron. Then she brushed back her greying locks. Her smile was a friendly one. "'You're Dan Abbott's son, ain't you?' she began at once. "'Hank Wallace, him as drives the stage, stopped in for dinner to our place yesterday, and told us all about having fetched you up.' Pa and I knew your pa, and your ma too, years back, afore any of you children was living, and long before I had Meg. The woman nodded toward the wooded mountain beyond. Meg's out studying, some fangdangled thing she calls botany. Then she waved a bony hand toward the glowing gardens. Them's what she calls her specimens. Queer things they get to learnin' in school nowadays. I didn't have much education. None at all is more like the real of it, but Pa, he went to summers for a spell, and learned reading, writing, and arithmetic, all a person needs to know in these mountains. But Meg, now she's been going ever since she could talk, seems like. Notion Pa Egger took. He got talked into doing it by Preacher Bellows. Then, before saying more, the woman cautiously scanned the woods and the road. Feeling sure that there was no one near enough to hear her, she confided, You see, we ain't dead sure who Meg is. She was about three when one of the Ute squawmen fetched her, all done up in one of them bright-coloured blankets they make. It was a terrible stormy night. There'd been a cloudburst, and the thunder made this old mountain shake for true. Pa Heger said he heard someone at the door, and I said twas the wind. He said he knew better, and went out to see. There stood a Ute squaw, and she grunted something and held out the little blanket bundle. Pa took it, being as he heard a cry inside of it. That squaw didn't stop. She shoveled away, and Pa shut the door quick to keep the storm out. "'Well, Ma,' he says, turning to me, "'what do you suppose we've got here?' "'Some Indian papoose, I reckon twas. "'Well, if tis,' he said, "'I can't throw it out into this awful storm. "'We'll have to wait till it clears, "'and then I'll pack it back to the Utes.' "'They was over at the Crazy Creek camp then, "'but when that storm let up and Pa did go over, "'there wasn't a hide nor hair left of that Ute tribe. "'They'd gone to bed in the hunting grounds, "'the way they always do, and we never seen em since.' "'None of them, said the old slinking coyote. "'It's queer the way he sticks to it that he's Meg's pa, "'but my man won't listen to it. "'Gets mad as anything if I say as much as may be true. "'He'll rave, pa, with, and say, "'Look at our Meg. "'Does she look like a young un of that skulking old wildcat?' "'Pa says, and I'll have to agree she doesn't, "'but he pesters her, asking for money. "'That is, he used to afore pa Heger set the law on him. "'But pa has a paper from the sheriff "'giving him the right to arrest that old Ute "'if he ever sets eyes on him.' 
but i declare to it here comes pa heger himself he'd be glad to meet you being as he knew your pa so well the lad turned eagerly he was always glad to meet someone who had known his father in the long ago years when he had come west just after leaving college hoping to win a fortune then as the boy waited for the man to come he wondered why meg did not return didn't she care to make his acquaintance pa heger as he liked to be called was a pleasant-faced man whose deeply wrinkled leathery countenance showed at once that he had weathered wind and storm through many a long year in the mountains as ma heger had done he seemed to know intuitively who the visitor was but before he could talk his talkative spouse began pa ain't this boy the spittin image of danny abbott him as used to come over as set by our fire and hear you spin them trappin yarns o own that was afore you went away and got married arter he wasn't alone when he came climbin up the mountain but along of him was the sweetest purest little creatures i ever sot my eyes on the two o them were a fine lookin pair dad shook hands with the silent man who showed his pleasure more with his smiling eyes than with words he was quite willing to let his wife do most of the talking the lad was pleased with the praise given his father and mother when they were young and he had once told mrs heger that his sister jane who was with him very closely resembled that bride of long ago wal now the woman explained how i'd like to see that gal she and my mare got to get on fine as she's anyhow as friendly as her ma was miss abbott used to come right out to my kitchen she'd be going to some fandangly cooking school the while she was getting ready to be married and she learned me a lot of things to make the kitchen work easier and doing some of them yet and often thinking of her dan did not comment on the possibility of his proud sister becoming an intimate friend of the mountain girl but for himself he found that he very much wanted to know more about their adopted daughter mr heger he turned on the man who stood shyly twirling his fur cap your daughter has just saved my life his listeners both looked very much surprised why how come that miss heger inquired you didn't say as how you'd seen meg all the time i was talking about her dan might have replied that he had not the opportunity to say much of anything but to an interested audience he related the recent occurrence sure that's queer now pa heger scratched his gray head back of one ear which dan was to learn was a habit with him when he was puzzled you say the mountain lion was crouched to spring at you then it must have been she had some young near they're cowards when it comes to humans them lions are they'll kill sheep and calves and deer and all the little wild critters but they don't often attack a man they'll trail em for hours curious sorter i reckon keeping out of sight makes you feel mighty uncomfortable to know one of them big critters is prowling after you whatever his intentions may be but that and now you was mentionin i'll walk back with you and when you go and take a look at it that's a bounty paid for them by the ranchers and if young air near by there'll be no time better for putting an end to em ma heger glanced often toward the wooded mountain beyond meg's botany gardens then to her husband she said i reckon meg knows that's company and that's why she's stayin so long she said to me ma ain't goin to school to-day she says i reckon i'll get some more specimens at that the man looked up quickly evident alarm in his clear blue eyes did she say anything about havin seen that skulkin ayuti has he been pesterin her the day after she's given him money she don't dare go to school fearin to be off rarin junk wi fire water and waylay her if ever i come up with a coyote i'll i'll the wife tried to quieten the increasing anger of her spouse pa heger she said you're alarmin yourself needless that ute knows the sheriff gave you power to jail him and he's most likely gone to war his drivers dan stood silently wondering what he ought to say he knew that meg had given the old indian money and he realized that was why she had been at home to save his life 
"'I shall be very glad to have you walk back with me, Mr. Heger,' he said. Dan wanted to be alone with the mountaineer. When they had started down the mountain road, the man at Dan's side was silent, a frown gathering on his leathery forehead. Suddenly he blurted out, "'This here business has got to stop. That skinking old beauty's got to prove that my Meg is his gal. In the courts if he's got to prove it, or I'll have him strung up. Jail's too good for him. Pestering a little gal to give up her savings that she's been putting aside these past five years, meaning to go to school in the big city and learn to be a teacher. That's what Meg's fingering on, and that skulking beauty draining it away from her little by little.' I made her back again and told her to shoot him on sight, but I reckon she ain't got the heart to take a life, though I'd sooner trap him than I would a, well, a coyote, that the name is after. Dan could no longer be quiet. Mr. Heger, he said, it was about that Indian that I came up here to talk to you this morning. I saw him hiding near our cabin. Yesterday afternoon he frightened the children, although he did not come out into the open. Then, about two hours later, we saw him hiding behind boulders on the road below us. He waylaid your daughter just as you fear, also she gave him money. While the boy had been talking, the man's great knotted hands had closed and unclosed, and cords swelled out on his reddening face. I knew it, he cried. Dan Abbott, I want you to help me catch that beauty. Meg won't, she ain't sure but what he is her pa, and it's again nature to ask her to harm him. I won't let on that you told me, Dan, but we gotta trap him. You didn't be afraid of him, he won't harm you or your family, he's too cowardly for that. What's more, he's paralysed in one arm. It's all shrivelled up so he can't hold a gun. Dan felt greatly relieved upon hearing this, and wishing to change the conversation to something pleasanter, he inquired how soon Meg expected to be able to go away to school. But the subject evidently was not pleasant to the old man. Neck fall the time, and me and Ma can't bring ourselves to think on it. Snowed in all winter without Meg, but as pleasin's been shet in a tune. The anger had all died out of his leathery, wrinkled face, and in the blue eyes there shone that wonderful love-light that his most beautiful thing in the world holds. Queer now, ain't it, how a slip of a baby girl could fill up two lives the way Meg did not from our start. And she cares just as much for us as we her, I reckon, bears like she does. The old man's voice had become tender as he spoke. I'm sure of it, Dan said heartily. Then, after a pause, Pa Heger continued slowly. That gal on is the queerest notions, the one's the way she takes to flowers. Then, looking up inquiringly, did Ma tell you how she earned the money she's saving for education? Dan shook his head, and so the old man continued. Teacher Bellows, twas I got it started on it. He's what folks call a naturalist, and when he used to stay up in our cabin for weeks at a time, he'd take Meg with him, specimen hunting. Seems like there's museum place all over the country that wants specimens of flowers growing up high in the Rockies. So Teacher Bellows and Meg would hunt for days, starting early every morning and back late in the afternoon, till they had got a lot of specimens. Then they'd press em till it was dry as paper, then mount em, as they call it, and send em off to a museum and along come a check. After, Teacher Bellows went back to his school. Meg kept right on doing it by herself, him helping now and then, and she saved nigh enough for two years schooling. She'll need to be a low-grade schooler, ma'am. She's got another queer notion, Meg has. "'Wonder if Ma told you that?' The man looked up inquiringly, and Dan, finding himself much interested in the notions of this girl, whom he did not know, said that he would like very much to hear about it. The old man reproved his fur cap and scratched his head again. The voice grew even more tender. "'You know what it says in that good book Teacher Brellows is always reading out of, how a little child should lead? Well, that's startin' what Meg done for me and Ma Heger.' 
when she was about six years old, or maybe now she was seven. It was curious how friendly even the scariest little wild critters was towards her. She could feed em out of her hand after a little coaxin, and how she loved em. You'll see as they was all the playmates she ever had. Then twas she started hospital for her critters, and she's kept it going ever since. Got one now, but, plague it, I can't remember what kind of patients got into it. She won't keep nothing captive after while they're well enough to fight for themselves out in the forest. Well, as I was saying back a piece, Meg was about seven, as I recollect, when she sort of sudden-like seemed to realise how twas I made my living, trapping wild animals and selling their skins at the trading post. But even then she didn't fully sense what it meant, seemed like, till the day we couldn't find her nowhere. She'd never gone far into the mountains afore, and when she didn't come home at noonday, Ma asked me to go hunt for her. It was late afternoon afore I came upon her, and I'll never forget that sight as long as I'm livin'. My habit was to sell the powerful steel traps to catch mountain lions and the fur animals I wanted for pelts. Every now and then I'd go around and shoot the critters that had been caught in them. While as I was going toward one of the big traps was, I heard such a pitiful crying, Good God, I was all wild with fear, and I ran like wolves was after me. I had a notion our baby gal was catched in it, and there she was, sure enough, but not hurt. Instead, she was down on the ground with her arms out round a little black bear cub that had been catched hours afore, and was all torn and bleeding. The fight was gone out of him, but he wasn't dead yet, and it was our little Meg who was doing the crying. Cling to the little fellow, not heeding the blood, her sobbing was pitiful to hear. I picked her up, and I ain't shamed to tell you that I was crying myself along about that time. "'Take him out, Pa,' my little gal was begging. "'Maybe he'll get well, Pa.' So I opened the steel jaws of the trap, and took out the little bear cub. He was too small to be worth anything for a pelt, and we fetched him home. But he died soon after, and Meg shed me bury him. But when she couldn't get over what she had seen, she had a raging fever for days. I sat up every night, holding her little quivering body close in my arms, and praying God if he let my little gal live, I'd never set another of them cruel steel traps to catch any of his critters as long as I had breath in my body. Well, boy, sort of a miracle took place. That little gal of mine had fallen asleep while I sat holding her, but just as I made that promise, silent to God, she lifted up and put her little hand and put it so soft like on my face, and says, still asleep, seemed like, I love you, Pa Hager. And when she woke up next morning, the fever was gone, and she was all well as ever. I kept my promise, he went on grimly. I went all over the mountain and took them steel traps, one by one, unsprung em, and dropped them down into the creek, some earthquake had split into the bald peak. It's bottomless, seems like, and what goes into that crack never do no more harm. Now, when I kill a critter that needs killin', I shoot, and then they never know what hits em. Meg is a sure shot, too, though she never packed a gun if it wasn't that I made her. They had reached the spot where the mountain lion still lay, and the old man stooped to examine it. I reckon it was a sure shot, all right. Then he shouldered the limp creature. That's fifty dollars bounty, so I may as well have it. I'll hunt for the cubs tomorrow. So long. Hit the trail up our way often. As Dan walked slowly down the mountain road towards his home cabin, he found that he was more interested in his unknown Meg than he'd ever been before in any girl. Jane's headache was better when Dan returned, but her disposition was worse, and poor Julie was about to cry. She had been spoken to so sharply when she had really tried to help, Gerald was angry and indignant. 
He had at first urged his small sister and comrade to pretend that Jane was being pleasant, but, after a time, even he had decided such a feat was too much for anyone to accomplish. Then he had intentionally slammed a door and declared that he hoped that it would make old Jane's head worse. Well, it was good that Dan returned just when he did. He entered the cabin living room, calling cheerily, "'Good Jane, I'm glad to see you're up.' Then he looked from one to the other. Julie, tearful, rebellious, stood near the kitchen door, and Gerald, with clenched fists, had evidently been saying something of a defiant nature. "'Why, what's the matter? What's gone wrong?' Dan was indeed dismayed at the picture before him. Jane, who had seated herself in one of the comfortable chairs in the room, said peevishly, "'Everything is the matter. Dan, you can see for yourself what a mistake I made coming into this terrible place and trying to live with these two children who have had no training whatsoever. They are defiant and rebellious.' Even as Jane spoke, a memoried picture presented itself of Julie's sweet solicitude for her earlier that morning, but she would not heed, so she hurried on. I have been lying in there with this frightful headache thinking all out, and I have decided that either the children must go back or I will. A hard look, unusual in Dan's face, appeared. There, and his voice sounded cold. Very well, Jane, I will help you pack. The stage passes soon. If we hurry, we may be ready. The children could hardly keep from shouting for joy. Something which Julie was cooking boiled over, and so she darted to the kitchen, followed by Gerald, who stood upon his head in the middle of the floor. But they had rejoiced too soon, for Jerry, who a moment later went to the brook for water, returned with the disheartening news that the stage was passing down their part of the road. Julie plumped down on the floor, and her mouth quivered, but before she could cry, Gerald caught her hands, pulled her up, and said comfortingly, "'Never mind, Jewel. The stage will be going past again on Monday. Me and you will stay on the watch and tell Mr. Sourface to stop for Jane when he goes back to Redford's on Tuesday. That is not so awful long.' "'Oh, boy, then won't we have the time of our lives?' Julie agreed that they would indeed, and decided to be very patient during the remaining two days. So she went back to her cooking, and, with Gerald's help, soon had the lunch spread. Jane ate but little, and shut herself up in her room for all that afternoon. Dan was almost as glad as the children were that she was going back to the east, but Jane, strangely enough, was deeply hurt because her brother, who had been her playmate when they were little, and her pal in later years had actually chosen the younger children in preference to herself that proved how much he really cared for her and as for his health he seemed to be recovering remarkably he had coughed a while the evening before and a shorter time that morning then he had evidently been on a long hike of all that had happened dan had said nothing knowing that jane would not wish to hear about the mountain girl toward whom she felt so unkindly that afternoon Dan gave the children another lesson in shooting cones from the old pine, far enough from the cabin to keep from disturbing Jane. Julie grew braver as she watched Gerald's success, and at last she too tried, and when, after many failures, she sent a brown cone spinning, she leaped about wild with joy. "'Now we are both sharpshooters,' Gerald cried generously. Then, glancing over at the cabin, he added, "'There's Jane sitting out on the porch. She does sort of look sick, doesn't she?' Dan's heart was touched when he saw the forlorn attitude of the sister he loved. "'You youngsters amuse yourselves for a while,' he suggested. "'I want to have a quiet talk with Jane.' Dan neglected to tell the children not to wander away. End of chapter 16